Welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmaker. That is me, where telling the truth is a revolutionary act in a time of universal deceit. Man, I had a rough week last week. It was rough. It was a little rough. People who follow me on Twitter probably saw that I was just over everything. (laughs) I was just over it all. By the time Saturday came around, after all of the Kavanaugh drama, I was emotionally spent. I thought the week prior was emotionally exhausting. No, last week was pretty emotionally exhausting. And I know a lot of people were right there with me. What a week. What a week. We've got Judge Kavanaugh. He made it through. The Republicans were hell-bent on making sure this guy got a, got confirmed. And they won. They won. At what cost to the country? I think a great one. A pretty big one. The country is more divided than ever. And in no large measure because of the way that the Kavanaugh confirmation played out. Before I get into that, you know, a couple other things that went on um, last week. <laughs> it, 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 well, but like I said, by the time Saturday came around, I was just just done. Once I knew that the confirmation was pretty much insured, I said on Saturday, I need to get together with some friends. And we had a boozy brunch all day hours. We had like three bottles of freaking champagne. We just were all in the media. We work for different networks. And it was a, it was, we were down by the water in a part of Washington, DC that I hadn't visited yet since I'd moved back. And they've really redeveloped Washington. I just can't get over it. I mean, I lived here for 20 years and then I went back home to Jersey for four and now I'm back in DC. Well, Northern Virginia. Anyway, this part down by the stadium, that used to be an area that was somewhere you didn't go. I mean, that was rough in that part of Southeast. And now it's just like this nice redeveloped, wonderful area with all kinds of cool restaurants and walkways on the water, sailing, people were sailing and stuff. It was great. I needed it. I needed a reprieve. I needed a reprieve. I hadn't been this exhausted over politics probably since Trump got elected, since like the last week of the election and then election night when the reality hit that Donald freaking Trump won. It's probably the last time that I had like kind of a gut punch facing what had just happened. So yeah, Saturday was, I I didn't even watch the vote. I I just, I, for what? I already knew what was going to happen and it's, uh, doesn't make me happy. It doesn't make me happy. It made me actually quite sad I went through a bunch of stages. I was angry. I was in denial. And and now I'm just, I was just sad over what the country had just gone through, what Kavanaugh getting confirmed meant to women, just the message that sent, that sent, how broken the Senate confirmation process has become. And Republicans and Democrats are guilty in their own ways of that. Um, but it just, the dysfunction of it all was very disheartening. Very, very disheartening. And now the Supreme Court has been dragged into this partisan muck 
And I mean, the, the Supreme Court's always had a certain amount of of political um, tug of war, right? I mean, being able, that's why they say that elections have consequences. One of the most important powers of the president is to nominate Supreme Court justices. Obviously, the Senate has the role to of advising and consenting, right? They advise and consent. So a president can't just put whoever they want on the Supreme Court. That happened back in history and with court packing and all of that, and that was a problem. So <laughs> that can't happen anymore. And um, But the Senate, I, I it's just... They just really abdicated their responsibility, I think, to maintain the integrity of the Supreme Court by pushing this Kavanaugh nomination through when it wasn't really necessary to do, other than just pure, raw politics of winning, the zero-sum game of winning. And I've been in this game a long time, and you know, I understand. I understand what's at stake and the need and desire to win in a political battle. Like I've said before, politics ain't beanbag. But the in this whole Trump era has really forced me to re-examine a lot of the tactics and things that I thought were okay before. And taking a look at them now and seeing them being used in ways that are really, what's the word? They're just being used in ways that I think are dangerous maybe at this point. I don't know. Dangerous might be a bit melodramatic. Oh, no, not really. If you look at where we are now as a country and what's being, what seems, what's deemed acceptable now in in politics, uh, it is kind of a scary time. It is. The checks and balances are starting to no longer check and balance. And with the way that Kavanaugh was confirmed and everything that we went through, uh, the, I, I just think that I don't know if this is a slippery, slippery slope now when it comes to Supreme Court nominations and, 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 and the process. Any other president, Republican or Democrat, would never have stood by a nominee that behaved the way Brett Kavanaugh did. Sexual assault allegations notwithstanding. Whatever side that you fell on on that debate, whether you believed Christy Blasey Ford, whether you believed Deborah Ramirez, I'm going to leave the Julie Swetnick stuff out. That's the Michael Avenatti client. And Avenatti, who I used to like before because I thought he was tough and he was kind of like needling President Trump with his own tactics with the whole Michael Cohen, Stormy Daniels thing. But I'm over Michael Avenatti now. Um, He's become more of a nuisance. And I think that his injection into this whole thing really gave Republicans cover to use him as a tabloid, attention-seeking, Democratic operative now and then the salaciousness of the Julie Swetnick allegation, she was the one that claimed the gang rape stuff. And if you notice, a lot of the Republicans, they were very incensed over these allegations, you know, these made up allegations and no corroboration and, and how it was so horrible for Judge Kavanaugh and his wonderful family. Yeah, okay. It was a little rough, yeah. It was a little tough time for Judge Kavanaugh, but it was also a tough time for those other women 
especially Dr. Ford, to have to go through what she went through to come forward. And it basically came down to an issue of who do you believe, right? We had the FBI investigation last week. We talked last week. We talked about that a little bit. And I had Asha Rangappa on to talk about what the FBI could and couldn't do. But the limitation in a background investigation like this, a supplemental background investigation, the limitation really came from the White House because it was at the instruction of the White House. So Republicans basically just used this kind of sham FBI investigation to hide behind to say that, well, look, we did our due diligence. Did they? Not really. There were, first of all, Christine Blasey Ford was never interviewed. Neither was Kavanaugh by the FBI. Secondly, Deborah Ramirez, she's the one who said at Yale he exposed her exposed himself to her during a drunken party their freshman year at Yale she listed a bunch of a bunch of witnesses who said that they that they could potentially back up her story or you know she had a list of people they were not interviewed by the FBI as a matter of fact a bunch of I don't know a bunch of a couple Yale students who were friends with Brett Kavanaugh they actually wrote an op-ed talking about we know that that Brett Kavanaugh was not a choir boy in college. He drank to excess often because we were his drinking buddies. And these were private citizens that had nothing to do with anything until they saw his hysterical hearing testimony and they felt he was being evasive and untruthful and they decided to come forward. The FBI spoke to none of them, including his freshman year roommate. The White House and White House counsel, Don McGahn, who has shepherded this entire nomination through, they made a decision because Trump, remember, you know, last week he said, well, I don't care. Let the, let the FBI investigate whoever they need to investigate. Let it be comprehensive. He used that term, which was sh- surprising to a lot of people. Well, come to find out, it was reported that, yeah, Don McGahn was like, um, Mr. President, not, not quite, not, not so much, not yet. We need to rein that in a little bit. And reigned it in, they did. And they limited it to, I think it was nine or 10 people, including the, um, the people that Christine Ford said was, were at the party, and uh, including Mark Judge, that guy. What a weirdo. I came across these videos from a YouTube channel that Mark Judge had. Really, really, really strange shit on that. I mean, there were like videos of women scantily clad laid out on a bed like kind of like they were passed out like things on like it was weird he was they were supposed to be like photo shoots or some kind of artistic thing I don't know but it was creepy considering what we know about all of this stuff it is weird anyhow so the FBI they interviewed some of these folks and they didn't have there wasn't anyone that said aha I was there and I drove her home or yeah I saw it happen and it was uncorroborated. Some said that they didn't remember. They had they were unfamiliar with this party. They didn't know anything about it. Um, Leland Kaiser, who was supposed to be Christy Ford's uh, really close friend, she said that she didn't remember it and that she didn't even know Brett Kavanaugh. Okay. But yet, Christine Ford said that she sent her a text message and said that she believed her. Apparently this Leland Kaiser has some issues. I don't know. But that was it. 
they didn't investigate anything else. They didn't talk to other people who were at Yale or they didn't, they weren't able to look at the calendar just this calendar that Kavanaugh was crying over and, you know, about his dad and everything. Yeah. The calendar, they didn't, they didn't see if uh, Mark, they weren't able to get Mark judges, um, employment records at a safe way. They, they weren't able to go look at a house that they thought that potentially could have been the location. Like they weren't able to really follow up on anything else other than the strict purview that the white house set for the FBI. So it was a farce, not the FBI's fault, but it was a farce. And it was done just to give enough cover to the craven Republicans to say, see, we conducted an investigation and there was no corroboration. How many times have we heard that since this whole thing finally went down since last week? There is now corroborating evidence. I mean, Senator Susan Collins lulled us all into a stupor during her 45 minute um, soliloquy on the Senate floor giving us a social studies lesson and uh, talking about the separability clause for God's sakes, uh, you know, but what was the gist of it all? There was no corroboration. Jeff Flake, he, you know, bitched out at the end after all of his lofty speeches and his conscience got to him after those women confronted him in the, in the, in the elevator. But what did he do? He ended up doing nothing. He voted for Kavanaugh. He's retiring. He had nothing to lose. But again, it goes back to he's deluded into thinking, I think, from what I hear, that he's going to run in 2020. And Jeff Flake, get the hell out of here. He has no chance. No chance. But I guess he felt like he couldn't go back to Arizona because it's a lot of Trump people out there and faces his home state folks if he had voted no, which I find to be ridiculous. So. So Flake was out. So it came down to Murkowski and Lisa, Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. At least she said no and said and gave a decent speech on the Senate floor and explained why. And I happen to agree with Lisa Murkowski in her thought process on this. She basically said that, you know, Kavanaugh may be a good man, but he's not the right man for the Senate because of his hyperpartisan freak out basically during the hearing that's not an unreasonable position I mean even former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens spoke out about the judicial temperament and and how he was supportive of Kavanaugh until the hearing and he said whoa that's not okay nothing okay about any of that and that shouldn't be ignored Supreme Court justices, they don't really speak out. It's kind of like the old written rule where presidents didn't really, didn't, ex-presidents didn't talk about current presidents. Supreme Court justices really don't talk about stuff like that. So that was a big deal too, but it didn't matter. None of it mattered. None of it mattered. The fix was in. Former President George Bush, remember, Kavanaugh was his staff secretary. He was very close to him. He was also the one who nominated him to the D.C. Circuit Court. So George W. Bush is very close to Brett Kavanaugh and all those guys stick together. And I liked former Bush, President Bush. I had my, quabble, my, my squabbles with him, but for the most part, he's a good and decent guy. But, you know, prep school, elitists, they worked with each other, loyalty, they stick together. So he called around to different senators, particularly 
Collins, Flake, Murkowski. Lobbying on behalf of Kavanaugh. Collins, she's a party, she's a party person. And it was clear if anyone who listened to her speech, anyone who suffered through it, uh, she's a party person. She was always voting for Kavanaugh. Unless there was some kind of significant tangible evidence against him, it was clear she was voting for voting voting for him the whole time. It's very disappointing. It was disappointing, to say the least. And then just to see the way that the oh, I, let me bring something else up too. So probably everybody heard a lot about this. Oh, due process, right? All the Kavanaugh supporters were talking about how this this good man was smeared by these uncorroborated allegations, and or some people said, "Well, we believed Christine Ford. We did. We think something happened to her for sure, but we just don't think it was Brett." Let me tell you something about this right now. Sexual assault victims may not remember certain details about the day or what they had on or the weather, but they damn sure remember their assailant. And Christine Ford said she 100% believed or knew, not believed, she 100% knew it was Brett Kavanaugh who assaulted her. So they just didn't, you can't sit here and say, well, I believe Christine Ford, but um, no, you don't believe her. That's bullshit. Because if you believed her, Brett Kavanaugh would not be a Supreme Court justice right now. So I don't want to hear it from the people who say that. That's number one. Number two, this whole idea of, well, in America, the, the concept of innocent until proven guilty still exists, even in situations like this. And there was no corroborating evidence. Well, let me tell you something about due process. The, the Senate doesn't have a really solid due process process for, for, for allegations like this. This was not a court of law. That is the difference. The Republicans were behaving as if this was being adjudicated in a court of law and using terms like innocent until proven guilty and all of those things. But they didn't act like this was a court of law when it came to other things. For example, a full investigation by the FBI, letting them interview all of the all of the witnesses, letting them look into the calendar and work schedules and trying to find the layout of the house that they, none of that. They didn't do any of that. So Christine Ford's version of events wasn't fully investigated and she was willing to go to cooperate with that. The investigation was set up to protect Brett Kavanaugh because to, to to basically to basically guarantee a, a certain result or else they never would have went for it so that the fix was in so the idea of due process and all of this righteous indignation over the other side or people against Kavanaugh saying that we were you know it was judge jury and executioner and he was guilty until proven innocent and how hard horrified they were by that a, this wasn't a court of law. It was a job interview. And the burden is on you to prove that what's being said about you isn't true. You walk into a job interview and they find out X, Y, and Z about you. You think the burden is on the other person to prove that what they're saying is true? No, it's on you to say, no, 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 that's not true. But they know, see, people know that the average American citizen doesn't really pay attention those, to those kinds of nuances. Everybody learns from the time they're like in first grade, you're innocent until proven guilty. That's true in a court of law. 
But it's pretty rich that someone like Donald Trump would use that since he doesn't apply that standard to anybody else. He didn't apply that standard to the Central Park Five, who he took out full page ads in New York City in the 80s saying they should be put to death. It was a Central Park rapist um, case for those who aren't familiar. Google it. And these were five black and Hispanic teenagers who were actually wrongfully convicted, served years in prison for it. And then they were um, released because the real person came forward and confessed. And I think there was DNA evidence, but they were exonerated is the bottom line. And they won tens of millions of dollars from the city of New York um, for their wrongful incarceration. Donald Trump never, now he called for their, their death, the death penalty before the trial even started, I don't think, or before it was ended. That's due process. That's innocent until proven guilty. Sure as hell wasn't then. Donald Trump screams lock her up and and leads people in chants about Hillary Clinton. And I'm no Hillary Clinton apologist. But where's innocent until proven guilty? So I don't want to hear this shit about innocent until proven guilty in the Kavanaugh situation. That is convenient for when they want it to be. Because there are plenty of people in the criminal justice system that uh, don't get that benefit of the doubt every single day so I'm over that part too but they got their way and they got their guy and something else that Jeff that 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 Kavanaugh did that was really really off-putting this guy wrote a an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal the night before the vote basically begging and pleading with with people about how he's going to be a fair judge and that he has the temperament and that he just said a couple of sharp words and maybe he was a little too emotional How many mulligans do you get, buddy? You know, for the people who say, well, he was just defending his family in his honor. Really? Well, sure, you can behave any way you'd like, but that doesn't mean there aren't consequences to pay for that behavior. This guy's a judge. You think if a defendant came into the courtroom and behaved the way Judge Kavanaugh did during that hearing, I don't care how how innocent he thought he was. You think that he would get away with that? No, they'd be thrown in jail for contempt. You don't get to ask questions of the judge. You don't get to have an outburst. You don't get to go off like that. No, no, you don't. But Kavanaugh gets a pass? Unbelievable. So after all of that, I was just over it. I really was. It just, it saddened me. It just saddened me. For women, the me- horrible message it sends. And you know what? Those that that young girl who approached Jeff Flake, Senator Flake, in the elevator last week, and she said, "Look at me and tell me that my sexual assault doesn't matter." Well, thank you, Republicans. You just looked in the face of every woman in this country who has suffered from sexual assault, and told her that it doesn't matter. What she went through doesn't matter. If the allegations get a, get get in the way of someone powerful that you want in a position, too effing bad. And that really sucks. I think that's a horrible message. And I can't, I, I can't offend it, nor will I. It really did make me rethink m- whether I would remain registered a Republican. I've been agonizing over this and agonizing over it. And I just... Um, it's hard. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. We need to have two functioning parties in this country. And 
who's going to fight for the Republican conservative principles on our side if people like me continue to leave? I, I don't know because I still believe in those principles despite the bastards that are that are perverting it every single day. So I don't know. I have to. It's 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 I'm agonizing over it. And luckily this week, my guest is Tom Nichols, who is uh, some, if you guys follow him on Twitter, but he is a, a professor at the Naval War College, and he's a big Never Trumper guy, but he's really, really thoughtful, really smart. And um, he wrote a whole piece about why he decided to quit the Republican Party after this whole Kavanaugh thing. So we're going to talk a little bit more about his piece and why. And He's also a Russia expert, which is pretty cool. But we were, I, I, we were talking about it and I told him, I said, I've been, you know, it's going back and forth with my, with my family. I don't know what to do. I don't know. I don't know. I still haven't made a decision yet. It's, I don't know. I'm not, I'm naturally not one to walk away from a fight. So it's against my nature. So I, uh, but I'm, 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 it's hard. <laughs> it's so hard. It's hard to watch a lot of what's happened, but. I don't know. You know, I think Republicans are going to pay a price. I I almost hope, I actually, I hope Republicans pay a price at the ballot box for this because otherwise, how is the ship ever going to be righted? <laughs> if that's a word, how do you write the ship? How do you course correct? As of right now, an, an interesting poll came out actually this week from the Washington Post. You know, we're a couple weeks away from the midterms. This is almost feel has a feel almost of a presidential election, right? Usually midterms only gives two shits about the midterm midterms. I mean, like voter participation rates in midterms is like 25% or some obnoxiously low number because, you know, people don't pay attention. They pay attention in presidential election years because it's a big deal. Well, a lot of people, they can't even name their congressman, never mind when elections are. So midterms have always been a challenge to get people out to vote. I don't think that's going to be the case this time. People have been really, really paying attention to everything that goes on. It's hard not to. It's infected every aspect of our lives. And it's a referendum on Trump for sure. It, it, it is. Um, every seat in the House is up for re-election. It's every two years. A um, bunch of Senate seats are up. It's every six years. More Democrats have to defend seats than Republicans. So the Senate is looking better for Republicans. And I actually, I don't really, you know, as pissed off as I am at the Senate Republicans for the way that they've, they handled the Kavanaugh situation. Um, I still think that most of the Senate is sane. So we need them to balance out the House. So Republicans are probably going to lose the House, even though the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation fight has woken up a lot of Republicans and so the enthusiasm gap now between Democrats and Republicans has closed. It's pretty, it's almost even now, I believe. But Democrats only need 23 seat pickup, net, net wins to get the House back. So that's not a lot. That's not a lot. And the Washington Post just came out with a poll that talked about, um, it, that, that focused on 69 districts that are considered swing districts where Republicans either 
um, have the seat or they held the seat, but Hillary Clinton won some of those seats and, or she came within a couple percentage points. So these are basically seats that are in play. They're not like, you know, 25 points up Republican. They're, they're swing districts. Interestingly, the results of this show, and if you're a Democrat, you'd be happy with this. For college-educated white women in these 69 districts, 62% said they're going to vote for the Democrat. 35% said they'd vote for their Republican. Those are the women that Republicans and Trump insulted during this whole Kavanaugh thing. Trump went and mocked Christine Ford in the you know when he was trying to in the beginning he was somewhat restrained, couldn't help himself at a rally in Mississippi, and he went and mocked her last week. It was disgusting. But was more, what was more disgusting were the people that were clapping like seals behind him, men and women. It, it was, I actually wrote a piece about this for CNN.com about um, the price that Republicans may pay for Trump taunting Christine Ford like that, that just sent a really disgusting message to a lot of people. And I encourage you guys to go read it. It's on CNN.com. I also talk about my mom's um, own sexual assault experiences. She had more than one. Uh, I talked a little bit about that last week, too. But I publicly wrote about that, you know, the, the parts that Trump mocked Christine Ford for, you know, not remembering certain certain details and things. And it's just a slap in the face to sexual assault victims and people who've been through trauma. I mean, it's just, it's there's scientific evidence. I've said this already before. But anyway, the point is that women who are watching this are like, what is this party? And who do, am I a part of this? I don't know if I want people like this representing me. So college educated white women, they're swinging pretty hard, pretty far with the Democrats right now. And they can make a difference in these swing districts that may give the house to the Democrats. But clearly Republicans made a calculation that they didn't care because guess what? A Supreme court seat is for a lifetime. It's a generation. So they they figure, well, we lose the house. Who cares? We've got a seat, another seat on the Supreme court. That's the zero sum game. Another interesting part is in the, in the generic ballot, like I said, even though voter enthusiasm has seemed to catch up a little bit, but um, the generic ballot in the same Washington Post poll, it says that it's 50-46 Democrats, so they're only up 4%. But in 2016, the Republicans were up 15 points in all of these same districts. So that's a hell of a swing. So if you're a Democrat, you're, you're happy about where we are because anger usually outlasts happiness. So anger is a hell of a motivator to get people to the polls. And I'm sure the Democrats are not going to go quietly and let this Kavanaugh thing go. But you know, Democrats oftentimes overstep too. They're talking about impeaching Kavanaugh and all that. I mean, that's overstepping, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what the impact is. I can't take Fox news for more than a couple minutes. And one of my closest friends in the whole world, she, she's a contributor over there. I won't name her. But, you know, the Hannity's and the Laura Ingram's and Tucker Carlson, like these people are just awful. Anybody, anybody else see went kind of viral on um, Twitter over the weekend? This jerk off that, that had a, a six pack of beer and was toasting the beer with, with uh, Laura Ingram 
and then they were going to take a selfie and he fell off his chair. Now, some people say it was staged because it was after a segment about people that are killing themselves by taking risky selfies. So maybe it was. But still, the gloating over this, oh, you know, I'm going to drink a beer for bread. There's nothing funny about any of that. There's nothing funny about any of this. It's be, uh, this is where we've gotten to. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's also, it's so frustrating. It is. It is. But the important thing to remember, though, is that don't get mad. Who said don't get mad? Vote Obama. My God, it would only it would take Trump in this era for me to be for me to quote Obama, the Obamas all the time. Oh, my goodness. I don't know what's happening to me. <laughs> but if it's true, it's true and it applies. So enough about the Kavanaugh stuff. I can't. Something else happened pretty big last week, too. The New York Times put out an explosive story revealing Donald Trump's business practices when his father was alive and basically laying out a really, really compelling and thorough case that Donald Trump and his father and their businesses committed tax fraud over the years and that the family got away without paying almost $500 million in taxes by manipulating the tax code or flat out fraud. Pretty extraordinary. They did this, I think it was a 18 month investigation with a lot of sleuthing and just good hard nosed reporting. And they showed all kinds of different documents and property records and how the Trump family would undervalue properties and sell them to other family members at a lower cost so they wouldn't have to pay gift taxes or they wouldn't have to pay certain property taxes if it was valued lower. But then years later, you see that they sold the properties for something like, I don't know, 10 times what they originally listed it for. I mean, some pretty grimy stuff. And it basically let them get away with not paying taxes on hundreds of millions of dollars. And it also blew open this myth, which those of us who are from the New York area are familiar with already with, with Trump being full of shit. He's a con artist. But it dispensed the, with the myth of that he was given a million dollar loan, a small loan from his father to help build his, and he built his fortune from there. That was a bunch of bullshit too. The New York Times estimated that it was closer to $400 million worth of loans and business dealings and things that helped Donald Trump and that his father propped him up in throughout his business career until his father passed away. Now, I've known this. I tried to warn people about this. Others tried to also during the election. Donald Trump, I always use Atlantic City as an example because I'm from New Jersey, so I'm more familiar with what he did in Atlantic City. But Politico back in 2016 did a really, really good series from a bunch of different Trump biographers. And they basically wrote summaries of what each of their books were about because they represented different times in Donald Trump's life. And one of the stories, they talked about Trump's mob ties and his mob ties in New York and then also his mob ties in Atlantic City. 
You couldn't do any business in Atlantic City back in the day unless you had some relationship with the mob. They ran it all. Just like the mob ran a lot of the general contracting and concrete pouring and bricklayers and teamsters and all that mafia stuff back in the 70s and 80s. That shit was real. (laughs) And Donald Trump was all up in it. And it's pretty well known. Plus his mentor was Roy Cohn, who was a mafia lawyer, besides also being general counsel to god-awful McCarthy during the days of McCarthyism, but that's another story. So the mob, there's a story about how when Donald Trump was trying to build his casinos in Atlantic City, the mob there, they scoffed at him and they were like, get the hell out of here. We're not doing business with you. They thought he was a chump. They would not do business with him unless his father, Fred Trump, would sign off on everything. He has a guarantee all of the business. So Donald Trump has never been a great businessman, great bullshitter, great marketer, not a great actual businessman. His father propped him up his whole life until he passed away. And if it weren't for Russians coming in and propping him up with all kinds of money after he went bankrupt for the umpteenth time, Donald Trump would be broke. He almost went personally broke back in the day too. And his father came in and saved his ass on that. I encourage everyone to go back and read that New York Times story. Only only because of the Brett Kavanaugh stuff, that would a story as explosive as the New York Times investigative report was on Trump and his taxes and, and, and all that, would that get buried? Like, why are we still not talking about that? And that's another reason why you will never see Trump's tax returns unless someone hacks them and leaks them or maybe Democrats take over and they subpoena them. They do some kind of oversight. I'm not sure. But that's the why, That's the reason why Trump doesn't want you to see his taxes. There, He's a tax cheat. Just like his father, he's a tax cheat. And, he's, and he doesn't want people to see it because then the veneer of this big successful guy is pulled away. It's, it's destroyed. That's partially what got him elected, right? All these gullible people thinking, that, oh, well, he's a businessman. Oh, he's a billionaire. Blah, blah. Okay. Yeah. Where does that money come from? How did he get it? Who did he screw over? Since that's, the, 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 that's what was left in his wake. So it's a long story, but it's worth the read. Definitely go back and and check it out. I think there's some summaries too, so you don't have to read all of it. It's like 14,000 words, but there's documents and everything. I mean, New York Times came with receipts, but yet you show that to Trump supporters and they don't care. They don't care because they're like a cult. There's another really good story actually about why Trump supporters don't care if Trump lies or if Kavanaugh lied or they don't care. It was in Vox last week too on Vox.com and it was like why conservatives don't care that Brett Kavanaugh lies and however you feel about Kavanaugh you know maybe you thought he was lying maybe you didn't I personally thought he was lying he had the disposition of someone who was lying he was really defensive and that's just not the way people behave when they're innocent but anyway um but it's a there was an actual study done by these researchers pretty smart folks out of uh, Carnegie Mellon Northwestern and MIT, I believe. And they talk about why people will let others get away with lying. 
And basically it, they say it's because it's to, as long as it's, it's a means to an end, they don't care. You know, the ends justify the means for these folks. That's scary to me because that means that you let someone get away with anything as long as it suits your needs and whatever your greater truth or end is. That is not the way our country usually works, shouldn't work like like that, and it's immoral. That can be a slippery slope into all kinds of stuff. But um, it's an interesting study because if you ever wonder, like, why do people do, like, why? And it also kind of is a, that's a good transition into um, my interview with Tom Nichols because he, he wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. So he talks a little bit about about why people behave the way they do or why people um, who are not really informed try to act like they are. Um, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating. It may have been a bit of a depressing week, but one thing you shouldn't be depressed about is finding great looking new blinds for your windows. That's why blindsgalore.com is around. Blinds Galore was the first place to buy custom windows online so they know what they're doing. Not only have they been in business for over 20 years, they're also a family-owned business and they've covered over 2 million windows so they know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right price. They make it easy. Blinds Galore creates 100% custom window treatments built to your exact measurements down to every detail. You get professional designer quality products but not at designer prices. In fact, they beat the big box store prices. BlindsGalore.com's products are hand-built from scratch, delivered right to your door, and they're created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. If you don't like your custom blinds or shades for any reason, they're the wrong color, you measured them wrong, or you don't like the style, you can just exchange it for free and get another one. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of their free expertise. It doesn't get any better than that. Whether you need more privacy, to sleep in, or just to fix up a room, BlindsGalore.com has just what you're looking for. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know that I, Tara Setmayer, sent you. That's blindsgalore.com. Tom Nichols, this week's guest. He is a professor at the U.S. Naval War College and at the Harvard Extension School. He's known as a Sovietologist. He's a senior contributor at The Federalist, and he's also authored seven books. He was previously a fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs, also a fellow at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and he has a PhD from Georgetown. I'd say he can write a book about expertise. <laughs> Proud to welcome my good friend, Tom Nichols. So Tom Nichols, Professor Tom Nichols joins me. I'm going to call you Tom because I, I feel as though we are kindred spirits, although we have never actually met in person, but we've been Twitter pals for a couple of years now, both being part of the never Trump cabal out there. Yes, um, you're one of the closest friends I've never met. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sometimes 
tragedy has a way of bringing people closer together. And um, I feel as though the era of Trump and his his election has been a, a travesty for this country. So uh, we've bonded over that. And I'm, I'm so glad that we have because I'm really thrilled to have you on this week's edition of Honestly Speaking, because when I initially invited you, it was really more about I just think that you're smart and that you have a lot to say that my listeners would would appreciate. But I also felt that you had a unique perspective on Kavanaugh initially because you were supportive of him. And then you actually had to do something which a lot of people don't necessarily do nowadays which was take a step back and say you know what I think I was wrong about some of the things I said about this and had a complete 180 on the Kavanaugh situation that was my initial reason for having you on now I wanted to always have you on but I thought that it was important to have you on now but then the Kavanaugh episode also made you rethink something else another really big um, decision life decision and that was leaving the Republican Party. You wrote a piece in the Atlantic that came out on Sunday afternoon, outlining very outlining very clearly why you're leaving the Republican Party. And I just want to read from it, a, a quote or two from it, and then we'll we'll jump right into it because it resonated with me. I've been struggling with this. It's been agonizing for me too. So I was attaboying you through a lot of this because it it hit home for me. You wrote, the Republican Party, which controls all three branches of government and yet is addicted to whining about its own victimhood, is now the party of situational ethics and moral relativism in the name of winning at all costs. That was really, really poignant because it's so true you also said the republican party now exists for one reason and one reason only for the exercise of raw political power and not for ends i would otherwise applaud or even support yep talk to me about that um well uh, first thing of course i'm always going to say is i don't represent the views of the war college or harvard or anybody else um You know, it's been agonizing for all of us because um, the Republican Party has been changing for a while. Um, In the piece, I point out, you know, I I had a kind of an estrangement from the party after the 2012 primaries, because here was, you know, a decent guy, Mitt Romney running. And meanwhile, you had people that were so callous, so awful, that even Ron Paul was kind of taken aback. You know, what do you want me to do? Let these guys die? And people, it was like, you know, give us Barabbas. You know, they started, I mean, it was really awful. (laughs) And anybody who's ever been to a CPAC conference can also attest to how awful some of the Ron Paul um, supporters were. We used to think that those people were the crazies and, you know, right. they they, right. they look sane compared to the Trump crazies. Imagine how bad you are that Ron Paul is telling you to dial it down. Right. Uh, so I said, you know, maybe maybe the Republican Party's just not for me anymore. I mean, I'm, just, I'm, I'm a, I was a happy Reaganite and I stuck through a lot of it, but I said, you know, I, even in that time, I was still voting Republican. I was on 2014, 2012 and 2014, I was rooting for not just the national presidential candidate. I was rooting for the congressional candidates. I was voting for, you know, I split my vote sometimes at the local level, but mostly I was was just rooting on the Republicans because I thought we're going to be a kind of solid center-right sensible country. Um, And I'm one of those Republicans, by the way, who did not see President Obama as a lunatic socialist. I used to tell my fellow um, Republicans, my fellow conservatives, stop calling Obama a socialist. 
You know, he's a one percenter in a lot of ways. I mean, he really he's a Democrat who extolled the virtues of the stock market as a metric. You know, I, I took that as victory. Um, but when the Trump threat arose, I said, you know, we can't abandon the party to lunatics. We didn't build this party for 150 years and 35 years since Reagan to uh, to just hand it over to squatters, interlopers. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, that, that, that's one way to put it. Yes. Just people kind of showing up and kind of taking your car keys and joyriding, you know, um, in the car. And so. Um, I, but I had always just—I had always believed, and this goes back to the part that really spoke to you because I—it was the thing that's been bothering me for a long time. I'd always believed that we were the party that did not believe in moral relativism, that did not believe that human nature could just be, you know, shaped like clay, that did not believe that, um, you know, whatever works at whatever moments, you know, by any means necessary. That's right. Uh, you know, we weren't that party. We took hits. I, I, I've always been proud of the fact that even though, you know, Nixon had to resign and flee Washington, when it came time to go, it was Republicans who came to him. It took him a while. It took him like two years and only after John Dean's testimony, yep. finally. But it, but at least they did it. And they t or, you know, the other thing people forget is um, the other great constitutional crisis triggered by Republicans in Iran-Contra. Mm. Um, that was investigated by a Republican. That was the Tower Report. That's right. Um, you know, we, you know, we were, we weren't great at cleaning our own house, but we at least understood that sometimes we take the hit and we were a party that was a lot more stoic and we valued that we valued stoicism. We valued consistency. We valued optimism. And now we are this churlish, we, they, now that I'm no longer, but you know, they are this churlish, whiny, complaining party that is in some ways worse than the Democrats about situational ethics, moral relativism, whatever works. My guy is my guy, no matter what. Um, I, years ago, and, and then I'll stop ranting about that point, but years ago, I, I, my, my brother ran a bar. And there was a guy in the bar who um, my dad was having an argument with about Ted Kennedy. And he, my dad said to this guy, look, you don't, you don't believe in anything Ted Kennedy stands for. You, you know, you're not that kind. He said, he gave my son a summer job and I'm voting for him. And that's all there. And he said, to my dad, Nick, that's the end of it. He gave my son a job. I'm voting for him. And I thought, you know, that's that was the old Democratic machine in Massachusetts. We're those guys now of what have you done for me? Totally transactional. Um, if you're a terrible person, I know we said character matters, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, we cared about foreign policy. We don't really care about it's what have you done for me lately? And I, I just I, I it, there is no conservative principle there at all no. and you're 100 percent right uh that idea about i'm voting for ted kennedy because he gave my kid a summer job that same philosophy hit me when i was a wide-eyed and bushy-tailed sophomore in college freshly minted into republican politics um hands-on because i went to george washington university in washington mm -hmm. and i went to college there because i wanted to be in the thick of things and it was the D.C. mayoral race with, between Mary and Barry and um, another woman. Uh, her last name was Schwartz. And she was a Republican, moderate, very actually very liberal Republican. But she had a shot in, in to, to, to run and win in Washington. She had a shot where most people would have thought, no way, against Mary and Barry. He was the, you know, everybody loved him, despite the fact that he got caught smoking crack in a hotel room with a, you know, 
for the prostitute. You know, the, you know us, right? Yeah, you know, the bitch set me up. Everybody remembers that. And so I couldn't understand how he not only did he run the city into the ground, but he was a like horribly immoral person. But I learned the lesson very early on about the importance of relationships and politics and local politics. And that rational thought goes out the window when it comes to how a politician makes someone feel. And I learned that very early. Walking precincts and talking to people in Washington, explaining to them that the city was going to hell, it was in debt, it was about to be in federal receivership on all these different you know, city services. It didn't matter. They would say to me, Yes, but my kid got a summer job, and that's true. My kid got a summer job because of Marion Barry, and my uncle works in the local whatever because of Marion Barry, and they didn't want they didn't care about anything else. And the Democrats were great at this. Great I mean, at that. I am. Uh, I was pre-programmed to be a Democrat, okay? Because I am a half Irish, half Greek, and that's just the setup for a joke. I know. <laughs> I'm waiting. I know, walk into right? a bar. <laughs> yeah, right. An Irish and a Greek walk into a bar and Tom Nichols walks out. Um, but but I'm, you know, half Irish, half Greek, immigrant stock on both sides, grew up in the industrial Northeast. I saw the Democratic machine up close. It is an awesome thing to behold. Um, and in fact, my first job in politics, um, aside from an, a summer spent with our mayor, was two and a half years working for a state representative who was a working class Democrat. Um, but I said, you know, the Republicans, and I, and I came to respect that um, because I think the de- one of the things that I realized is uh, no matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, especially if you're in local politics, people need help against, you know, City Hall. They need, they need sure. advocacy. Um, but uh, I said, you know, Republicans are kind of the party of the grownups, right? The party of deferred gratification, the party of stoicism, the party of making hard choices. And we're not that now. Now we're the party of get my kid a job. Um, and I and I find that astonishing. I'm also I have to say that I'm I, I know that a perception of me about this issue among many is that basically I'm just being a sanctimonious jerk. I'll, I'll plead for that. I mean, I'm, I have my kind of sanctimonious jerky moments. Wow, was, you save that I, for Twitter. I, <laughs> no, Tom, please. Okay, you can argue with me a little more. Uh, but I, I, um, I was spoiled because the three people I worked with in politics were all people of really strong, a really strong sense of rectitude without a hint of scandal. Uh, a very popular mayor, a very popular state representative, both of whom were as honest as the day was long, and a moderate Republican senator about whom there was never a whiff of scandal. So when all this came, and I I just took that as kind of the natural order of things. And when all this started to happen, and I saw my fellow Republicans saying, well, you know, took some some kind of whifty connections to the Russians there, and he cheated on his taxes, and he paid off a porn star. (laughs) You know, and and I said, these are all things that once mattered to us. And it's even worse for the evangelicals who cast all of that aside, who were once the moral majority. I mean, mm-hmm. I came of political age in the 90s where Ralph Reed and James Dobson and all of those guys had strong influence. Yeah, strong influence in, in the Republican Party and who decried Bill Clinton and his transgressions, I, rightfully so at that time, yes. and talking about the importance of family structure and and you know okay but those people now 
Right, of course. So that, this was all a big deal about how, you know, politics is a kind of teachable moment. Uh, it, it serves that parties serve a pedagogical function right. and a, and a um, performative function, function to show the voters uh, what kind of things we value. And all that's gone out the window. You know, the, the, the thing about the evangelicals is being a Northeastern um, Greek Orthodox Republican in the day. I mean, I was never an evangelical. I was always uncomfortable in, in dealing with the evangelical wing of the party because I always had a sneaking suspicion that they were not serious. Yeah. And this especially is this is one of the many things, you know, there was no one thing that drove me out of the party. But this was one of many things where I said, OK, a major part of the coalition of this party really isn't serious and, and really can't be trusted that what they're saying is what they believe. And, you know, again, if at some point, if you're in a party with a bunch of people that you don't trust and don't believe, then the question is, why are you still there? Yeah. Um, and I think that there was a, a part, uh, there's, I always question, I'm always cynical about people who are unwilling to move on anything. They're just so rigid that you don't even want to hear the other side. I may even agree. You know, I come from a non-denominational church. I understood and I didn't really disagree with a lot of the positions evangelicals took, but what bothered me was how rigid they were and unwilling they to even listen to the other side and it was very much you know we're right and wrong and i never thought that that was christian like and you're not right that's that's the part that really used to bother me is to say you know well because of your politics my you know i i come from a different religious tradition where you know your politics are really not particularly important to the salvation of your mortal soul right um, that, you know, well, I come from a very old world religion that is more about, you know, the, the state of your relationship with God at the moment of your death and all of that stuff. Uh, I shouldn't say that like that, but you know, no, I know. <laughs> oh, oh, that malarkey, you know, but, no, that, I... but that's that kind of thing, as right. opposed to, did you, you know, did you support HR 471 on final passage? Well, that's where I think the evangelicals have gone astray is that it's become less about saving souls, which is what the gospel tells us we're supposed to be doing, to becoming a political wing of a party. And I just don't think that God is pleased with that. And they've they've sold out on so many principles that they were so dead set on setting the example for and castigating other people for not following. And now that seems to be malleable. And that's a horrible message. The soul you're supposed to save, first and foremost, is starting with your own. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, you know, rather than, I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I once asked, um, like all young kids, I, I once played stump the chump with my priest, you know, and I said, oh, what happens to all those, what happens to a billion Chinese, father, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, his answer was very sensible. You know, I don't know how God speaks to a, you know, Siberian farmer. He said, but I'm, but I think I know how he speaks to you and what you're supposed to be doing. And that's, you ought to start with you and worry about that before you, you know, save China. And I'll tell uh, you what, I don't want to be anywhere near Jerry Falwell Jr. or Franklin Graham on Judgment Day for them. Not not without asbestos. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's something else that you said in this piece, and then I'm going to ask you about Kavanaugh. Um, You say that the Republicans have now eclipsed the Democrats as a threat to the rule of law and to the constitutional norms of American society. So the new Trumpist GOP is not exercising power in the pursuit of anything resembling principles and certainly not for conserv- not conservative or Republican principles. I, I was just applauding you as I, as I was reading this because 
the sad reality is you're right. How, what do the Republicans stand for anymore? This, the, the way that they adjudicated the Kavanaugh situation and what they're allowing Trump to get away with, with the Russia investigation and others, it really is. I never in my life thought that I would say that Dem- that Republicans are, are more of a threat to the rule of law than Democrats, because that's part of the reason why I'm not a Democrat. Never thought I'd get there. But we're there. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, uh, I the, the rule of law issue is, is really, to me, this well, this and foreign policy. Because the time before this where I really kind of paced the room and said, you know, I just can't be a part of this was after the Helsinki summit, <laughs> which to me was the most humiliating defeat of an American president in my lifetime. I mean, it was just, it, it made me physically cringe to watch it. Uh, and just to, just to reiterate, you know, you are a professor of basically very serious foreign policy stuff. You know what you're talking about. You know, so this is coming from someone you're viewing this through the lens of your knowledge and expertise on these issues, not even just as a casual observer, which is why it's more important to to reinforce to to people listening that you're you're, you know, you're coming from a position of expertise. And we're going to talk about your book, The Death of Expertise after this. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm a Russia specialist. I've written books on Russia. I've written books on preventive war. I've written books on nuclear weapons. But I've spent most of my career dealing with Russia, and I just i i couldn't I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I mean, I just was alternately appalled and terrified watching that press conference in Helsinki, and I thought, well, this for sure will finally drive centrist Republicans, you know, to to support the Mueller probe, to distance themselves from Donald Trump, to you know, do all these things that I just was waiting for the last straw, you know, and I said this. More than this, because this isn't a matter of style. This isn't just picking on John McCain, right? To, uh, pissing on a gold star family. This is substantive. This is dangerous. I mean, this is putting the Republican jeopardy to to behave this way at a summit. And um, you know, the Republicans all kind of shrugged and said, "Yeah, you know, he is what he is." And I I thought, okay, I'm waiting for the elect because I thought, well, once we get creamed in the elections. And I'm not even sure that's going to happen because, of course, Democrats being what they are will, could well screw this up. Um, but <laughs> I thought once we get created in the elections, maybe some Republicans will step forward and say, now that we've all learned our lesson here, you know, it's time to have a different kind of Republican Party. After the Kavanaugh business, I said, there are no centrists left. This isn't, you know, there, there's no there's no uh, moral center to the Republican Party. And you're right. I changed my mind on Kavanaugh, which of course in these days is the mortal sin to change your mind is like, um, you know, unthinkable. Yeah. You're an apostate. Well, and to both parties to change your mind on anything is just, is like a sign of weakness or stupidity or something. Well, Donald Trump exhibits that every day. And so that's being reinforced in a society where we're, we're already battling with a certain amount of immoral behavior and, and rewarding bad behavior. Now it's being reinforced that you never back down. You never apologize. You never critically think and actually change your mind after having, you know, thought about something and saying, Oh, you know what? That idea may actually be the right one. No, God forbid that we do that because Donald in Donald Trump's world, thanks to his mentor, Roy Cohn, you yes. never back down. You never admit you're wrong. Not only do you not do that, you re, you double down, triple down, reinforce the lie and the bullshit and keep going. And, Cause the more you tell people that, 
they'll eventually believe it, which is a, a Nazi concept. But anyway, it's but it's not just that they'll believe it. It's that you get them so invested in defending a point that they're terrified of the humiliation of ever saying they're wrong. That's that's and, true. You know, they get so far. This is the you know early on in the in the Trump primary in the in the 2016 primary when Trump was starting to gain momentum, people kept saying to me, "If you keep making fun of Trump voters, they're just going to jump Trump, vote for Trump." And my answer was, "If you've already decided to vote for Trump, you're, you've climbed so high in that tree, you're you're like a treed cat who can't get down." Yep. You know, they just because their answer was always to climb higher and climb higher and climb higher. And I would argue that almost all of the people who are now left in the on the Trump train cannot possibly come down out of that tree without falling. They just can't. There's no way. Yeah. Uh, my my, I, my mom actually had a really um, interesting observation about that because uh, and I've talked about her uh, and her experience with sexual assault and I brought it to the Kavanaugh situation. And I also wrote about this on CNN.com. But she said that watching the way that people were reacting to the sexual, the reality of sexual assault in this country and how many women who have come forward and told their stories, including her, and just dismissing it, she said that it is basically what you're saying, that people are so invested in being right, in the fact they understand that they've kind of cast all, most of their principles aside to accept Trump because he was going to do something for them. And then once they realize that all of that Faustian bargain stuff wasn't worth it, then what? That it's a humiliation to admit that they were wrong and sold their souls for nothing. So they'd rather clamp down, double down, because it's unprincipled compromise was and the term she used. You know, that's it's it's interesting you say that because of course for these for the people who thump their chests about being Christian, you know, a certain amount of, of humility and um, reconsideration, you know, is something that is taught to all of us as as young Christians that you know you can be wrong and that um, you should um, have a have a moment of realization that you can say, look, you know, I've made an error, I've done something wrong. Instead, it, as you say, it's double, triple, quadruple down um, because there's no way that I'm going to let somebody get over on me uh, and and laugh at me for being wrong. And I, I think that this is just a huge amount of, well, I, I think that the problem with everything in society, and it's partly why I wrote the book, I think the problem with everything in American society is about narcissism. Yes. That, you know, this is all about me and how I feel and what I want. And I think that this, again, I'll be bipartisan about this. I don't think that's any different um, with, you know, people on the left. I mean, there were people on the left really, I got some hate mail already about how dare you say that the Democrats are the party, you know, you, you said the words identity politics, that that's what racists say, you're oh. a bad person, you know, not and you all. Were, you weren't wrong, by the way, on that part, because uh, for, for, for those, and I suggest everyone go and read, read uh, Tom's piece, why uh, I left the Republican Party in the Atlantic. Uh, you also talk about the Democrats and why you're not exactly running over to register as one of them. And right. I, I related to that, too, because I will never register as a Democrat. Sorry to all my Democrat friends out there and who like me now because <laughs> we share in our disdain for Trump and what Trump is doing. But the just the worldview of liberalism and progressivism and Democrats, I, I don't agree with that. And part of it is what you mentioned in your piece that's not something that i subscribe to and, and ever will so that's not an option for me either well if either one of us went to the democratic party we would last exactly as long as it would take for us to step on a landmine 
of the one thing that you know runs afoul of some purity testing of right. any particular group in the Democratic. There's party. a lot of intolerance in the Demo in the Democratic yes. Party. The party that talks about being tolerant, believe me, there's a a lot of intolerance there. But well, I, I chose my words carefully. I mean, I wrote a piece. Um, you know, I'm look. I'm still basically a conservative. I don't know how conservative, but certainly more conservative than most of the people in the Democratic Party. I wrote a piece a couple of years ago talking about this terrible totalitarian streak in the Democratic Party. But once again, we've become that as well. The Democrats always struck me that the Democrats, the totalitarian streak is exhibited by saying, even though I've won and I've beaten you in court, and particularly, for example, on gay marriage, right? We won, Anthony Kennedy's you know, tipped the court, gay marriage is legal. Um, they were still going after people who said, well, I accept this ruling, but I'm not comfortable with it. And they said, well, I want you to be comfortable. You must be. I demand that you accept this right. and celebrate it. And it's like, you know, human beings don't work that way. Um, and the Trumpers now are the same way. To go back to Kavanaugh, look at Kavanaugh's on the court now. And there are still people in the press, pundits on Twitter, thump, banging the table, thumping their chest, saying you must admit that Kavanaugh is a wronged man. He belonged on the court. And I keep saying Kavanaugh, a better Republican Party, would not have nominated or defended Kavanaugh. That's and, right. And that this wouldn't have happened at all in a better Republican Party. And that's part of what upset me so much about watching this whole thing unfold. Because I, I've i been around, you, you've been around a little longer than I have, involved in politics for about 25 of my 43 years in this earth and Republican politics at that. And it just really it disturbed me during the whole Kavanaugh situation, the way in which the Republicans completely threw out all notion of let's maintain the integrity of the Supreme Court. That didn't matter. It was the winning at all costs that you talked about in your piece. It was, we're going to, we're going, we're hell bent on getting the seat. We don't care. And it doesn't matter if it divides the country. It doesn't matter the message it sends to women. None of that matters. Winning matters at this point. Yes. And, and for what? And for what? Exactly. He is not the only freaking conservative jurist in the country. And it, it, there were plenty of others to choose from that didn't have this kind of baggage. Maybe he's completely innocent. Maybe he's not. But the fact that there was even a question, like you said, a couple years ago, any any other Republican president, even a Democrat, doesn't matter, any other president would have dropped him and said, I'm sorry, but we can't make, move forward with someone like this with the question on the court. Well, I, I mean, let's let's give let's give Kavanaugh supporters their due for a moment, because what they would say is. If you drop him purely, and this is how I started, and I took a lot of hits for this. And I said, look, if you drop him based entirely on a 36-year-old, single, anonymous, unsubstantiated allegation, then what you're doing is you're basically giving the Democrats an instant veto by, by basically having a you know black letter, a literally blackmail uh, of a single, unsubstantiated charge. Now, I, True, I fair. said- you can't, and, but the mistake I made, and I went too far by saying, oh, what you did at 17, it just doesn't matter. And I, don't, I didn't really understand that for a lot of women, including my wife, that for a lot of women to say, look, if this guy really was guilty of sexual assault at 17, we're just never going to be comfortable with him being on the court. And I said, you know, I, I get it. I, I'm thinking of high school as a long time ago and as a man. Right. Um, and my wife came. She saw something I tweeted. She came and she looked at me and she said, I love you, but you're wrong. She said, you're just wrong about this. 
happy wife, happy uh, life. You learned. You know, my wife is is the one. I mean, my wife is also the one who told me I should. When I said, I'm thinking of writing this piece and I'm really done. And then she said, I can understand why you would be. And I said, okay, then it must be the sensible thing. Because my wife is much more sensible and even keeled and level headed than I am. Um, (laughs) But I still said, you know, look, I don't know if to this day, I don't really know if Ford's accusations are accurate. I don't know if something happened between them that she remembers differently than he remembers it. And you know what? I don't care because I said, look, any decent Republican would have seen his behavior in the Fox News interview and his behavior in front of the Senate. And they would have said, look, without I I reach no conclusion on these charges, but you have disqualified yourself by your execrable behavior. A hundred percent. hundred percent. People got really mad at me because I said what what Kavanaugh did was, you know, the Democrats did something terrible by throwing around anonymous charges uh, that then became less anonymous, but they threw around unsubstantiated charges. But what Kavanaugh did was worse because the country's going to live with the damage he just did to the court with that partisan, you know, that partisan tirade. Yes. Tirade. Yeah. Um, And that, you know, it was, and of course a lot of men said to me, Oh, he was supposed to just take it to which my answer was no, you can go before the Senate and say, look, you can do, you can be Clarence Thomas. That's I mean, right. Thomas, Thomas opened up the flamethrower on the Senate, but he did it without going partisan. And he did it without threatening that, you know, what goes around comes around. And, right. You know what? Oh, I mean, it was just it was, I guess, to me, Kavanaugh lived down to the very stereotype of a hyper partisan, super entitled frat boy uh, that didn't belong on the court. And I when Susan Collins got up, I said, well, maybe there's still. You know, I couldn't believe that Jeff Flake, even though he's retiring, Jeff Flake just took a pass. He what just a disappointment, up. right? But then he's always been like that, unfortunately. Yes. I mean, right. he's had lofty words, and I've agreed with him on his positions on Trump. But when it came down to actually doing something, he didn't. And that was, to me, one of the most cowardly acts. You're he, actually he, retiring. And he thinks, yes. I think he's deluded into thinking he's going to run for president. That's the only reason why. And I heard that, you know, Republicans in Arizona said if he hadn't done this, he'd have to move out of the state. Because they, he would just get run out of Arizona, which, again, I think that sometimes you just need to stand up and do the right thing. But I'm from Jersey, so we just, we're, naturally born, we're naturally born with balls. I guess not everybody else is. And, and if you're going to get run out of Arizona then, and you're worried about that, then don't be the senator from Arizona. Right. That's right. Uh, but the, the other. Susan problem, Collins. Well, and, and but first about Flink. I mean, Ben Sass took, takes a lot of crap about this. And, you know, I was disappointed when Sass gave a great speech and then voted the way you voted. But I keep telling people, I worked in the Senate. You know, you worked in the House. There are limits to what a first-term senator can do. And he could have voted against um, uh, uh, Kavanaugh. And that would have been the end, you know, would have been a great moment of principle, at which point Mitch McConnell would have made sure to ruin his life and make sure that Nebraska never saw another federal dollar and that Sass eventually would have been run out of town. And you're right about that. And for a lot of people who don't understand how Washington works, that's the part of it that they just don't, they don't like, but it's the reality. And you're right. And I like Ben Sass on a lot of levels. I think he's actually one of the good ones. But if he wants to stay there in a position, there is a certain amount of going along to get along you have to do as a first term senator. You're right about that. It sucks, but it's true. What people don't understand about Sass is the speeches he's given are incredibly risky for a first term senator that he's already on the edge. 
um, that, you know, that, that, that those kinds of speeches, that kind of opposition, the kind of things he said, the direct criticism of Trump, uh, you know, that's that's pretty edge behavior to begin with for a first term senator in the Washington that's you know, true. environment, especially but, the Senate. The Senate is very yes. different than the House. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it, it moves at a snail's pace. There's Byzantine rules, the decorum and rules rule the day in the Senate. The House is, you know, you can you can get away with a whole lot more than the House, but it was designed that way on purpose. It's the upper chamber. Absolutely. And, and Collins who has a ton of seniority, has no one to fear, is indestructible. Electra, I said, let's see what happens. But I thought, you know, she's Susan Collins. She's been there forever. She's going to vote yes. I think it was the idiom of her vote where she gave this windy seventh grade social studies speech <laughs> that really was like, now listen, you know, listen, all of you, settle down, people, because there's going to be a quiz. Um, and then just walked past all of the most important things uh, in this, uh, including temperament, partisanship. I understand if she wanted to say, if she had started her speech by saying, look, I dismiss these allegations because they are not proven and I'm uncomfortable with them, but I understand, you know, the, the pain of the people that have brought them forward and, you know, fine. I, I could have kind of gotten past that. But to start off with, well, here's my half-hour defense of Judge Kavanaugh's legal record, and then ignore all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. I thought was it went beyond just a kind of partisan speech. I mean, it was insulting. I found myself feeling insulted, um, almost like this was like you know, yeah, like uh, you were were you ever really thinking about this? She wasn't taking anybody seriously. Yeah. And I think yeah. for women in particular, it felt it was particularly stinging because as a woman, I think a lot of people were looking at her to do the right thing and be the adult in the room and say, you know what, how, you know, I acknowledge what happened. We, we don't have corroborating evidence. It wasn't enough for me to disqualify him on that alone. However, his reaction and his behavior, which is what basically Lisa Murkowski said, um, the, the, you know, that was something I felt was disqualifying for the court. And it's dividing this country and we need to, you know, you don't get to, you don't get to a mulligan like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. most I, average I, individuals don't get that many chances. And I'm sorry you, if, if you feel as though he was just defending his honor and his family, that's fine. He had every right to do that, but that doesn't mean he had a right to be elevated to the Supreme court when you act like that. No one in his courtroom could ever act like that and, and just be okay. I mean, why, exactly. is, why are the standards different? You know, there were people also who said, well, you just want you want the Senate to just hand a, a loss to Trump. And I thought, well, um, given the way Trump has acted about this and the way Trump turned at the very end toward attacking uh, um, Christine, Ford, yeah. Ford, I said, you know, the, the Senate has an opportunity here to, in fact, hand a loss to President Trump and to say we are a co-equal branch of government, even if we are members of the same party. We are a co-equal branch of government. We demand a certain level of behavior and decorum and seriousness about governing. And instead, you know, Collins and the rest of them said, the party is the most important thing. Our, the institution of the Senate is just as important. I thought it was really ridiculous for Collins to stop in the middle of the speech and say, and let me, you know, just defend the honor of the Senate here. Yeah. Which, you know, was the most Senate uh, thing to do. Right. It, was, it was the most swamp-like Senate thing to do to have a long-serving senator stop in the middle of this emotionally charged moment in american politics and say oh and by the way i don't like you little people crapping on the senate 
you know, yep. I, I really thought that was like, wow, um, that's the kind of thing that could turn me into a populist. And I think we all know how I feel about populism. Right. So, well, I, you uh, know, I, I think that's actually a good segue into, into talking about your, your book, The Death of Expertise. Um, it came out last year. And what, what a lot of people probably don't know is that it was initially inspired by a piece you wrote in The Federalist in 2014. And I went back and I read that. And I found myself looking, reading through it and going, holy shit, this applies to 2018. <laughs> uh, this was prescient in ways you probably had no idea or thought that it would apply to Republicans. Um, but in your, in your, I'm just going to read a quote from your piece from 2014. <laughs> which is it still astounds me how right how how right on you were you said that um you said that what i fear has died is any acknowledgement of expertise as anything that should alter our thoughts or change the way we live to reject the notion of expertise and to replace it with a sanctimonious insistence that every person has a right to his or ho- his or her own opinion is silly You also said that how there's a, and I think this is a chapter in your book too, how conversations became exhausting. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. I I have to tell you that my mom and I go rounds on Facebook a lot of times with people who are just these Trump cultists and it's exhausting talking to these people because they are exactly what you talk about. You say in here, you say people with strong views on going to war in other countries can barely find their own nation on a map. None of this ignorance stops people from arguing as though they are research scientists. Tackle a complex policy issue with a layman today and you will get snippy and sophist demands to show every increasing amount of proof or evidence for your case and even though the ordinary interlocutor in such debates isn't really equipped to decide what constitutes evidence or know when it's or no or to know it's it when it's presented that is the average trump supporter today right um I, you know, a good example of this is when I uh, had a discussion with a friend. Uh, I mean, this is always when it's more painful. It's when somebody you love. And uh, he said, and a story I've told all over the country ever since then, he said, uh, well, you know, Trump could be right. I mean, unemployment's a lot higher than you think it is. It could be 40%. I said, I guarantee you, I swear to God, it's not 40%. He said, well, how do you know that? I said, well, because during the Great Depression, it was 25%. And there were soup lines. I said, you really think that? He said, and he kind of looked and he said, well, I don't know if I believe that. And then he said, but it's still really high. And I said, it's not, it's probably closer to five or 6%. And we were in Massachusetts at the time. It's probably closer to five. He said, I just don't believe you. And I said, where are you getting your evidence? And he said, Sean Hannity. Well, there you have it. I said, there you have it. Um, But you know, this, this notion of, well, your evidence, my evidence is rock solid. Your evidence is just crap. It, it makes it makes a conversation completely exhausting because you're always starting uh, from square one with everybody. And I just stopped doing it. I, you know, when people would say, well, you're, you know, uh, it, this actually happened. Uh, the thing that spurred me to write the, the article. And by the way, I should tell your listeners, it really wasn't about Trump. The first blog post was actually in 2013. And the Federalist picked it off my blog, asked to use it in 2014. And I signed the the book contract wasn't it, which it was pitched at me from the publisher in early 2015. So Trump wasn't even a blip on the radar yet. Right, right. A person said to me about 
because again, I speak Russian, I'm a Russia expert. And I was talking about Snowden and I said, look, Russia's really involved in this. You've got to understand how the Russians work. And this, and this young person on Twitter said to me, Tom, I don't think you really understand Russia. Let me explain to you how Russia is. <laughs> and I finally just said, you know what? No. Right. How about no? <laughs> how about no? I'm like a professor. The... I profess. Right. That is what I do. And, the, you know, I'm, when it's, if it's micro, molecular biology, you can, you can lecture me. If it's, you know, uh, taxidermy or, you know, car racing, if I don't know, that's fine. But believe me on this, this is where I should talk and you should listen. And people find that really insulting. They find that really difficult to accept that we have this division of labor. Um, you know, and you see it in, I'm sure all of us have know the experience. Ask your doctor how many times people walk in and say, um, here's what I have and here's what you're going to do. My doctor, all the doctors, I interviewed tons of doctors, my own personal physician, he just kind of rubbed his head and said, I don't mind that people ask me questions or that they're skeptical. He said, when they walk in and tell me what I'm going to prescribe them, it gets right. a little difficult. That's right. You, you talk about it um, in that article. You call it the confidence of the dumb. And you say <laughs> that the dumber you are, the more confident you are that you're not actually dumb. It's actually a scientific thing that it's, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. That's right. And, and for your listeners, the easiest way to think about this is a, a, an example I've used many times. You go out to karaoke with somebody that can't sing, right? The guy who's awful. And he gets up there and he, and he makes you all suffer through five minutes of welcome to the jungle or, you know, something. <laughs> and he, and awesome song, it. by the way. Right. And then he steps off and he says, nailed it, right? <laughs> and you're all going, dude, no, no. Right. Uh, it was awful. Um, and that's the Dunning-Kruger effects. People, the dumber you are, the less competent you are at something. It's like the guy who says, look, I'm a really great driver. That guy is always the worst driver in the group. Usually, because if you are, then you don't need to constantly tell everyone that you Trump. are. Right. Kind of right. like the way Trump is every day. You say, but when citizens forego their basic obligation to learn enough to actually govern themselves and instead remain stubbornly imprisoned by their fragile egos and caged by their own sense of entitlement, experts will end up running things by default. And that's a terrible outcome for everyone. And, and I think that's a, it's important, too, because this whole idea, I think this is part of the Trump appeal is that people think that these elitists and these quote experts they're talking down to you and we're gonna just you know own the libs and own the liberal you know own the elites and so they they just dismiss fact and and things that are right in front of them because no 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 it's more important to own because the libs. it doesn't make them happy <laughs> right it, you know it's like uh, unemployment isn't super high well, but I, I don't have a job, so I want to believe it is. Now, that's a normal thing, right? And right. I think experts make that mistake often. On both sides, yeah. We, yeah, we lack empathy. I mean, it's really stupid to walk up to somebody who's unemployed and say, uh, dude, you know, uh, unemployment's not really that high. Well, for that guy, it's 100%. Yep. But nonetheless, you know, for people, for example, say, well, crime, you know, I'm going to vote for a guy like Trump because crime is out of control. When you tell them that crime is actually dropping in the United States, they get mad at you because you've removed a rationalization for them feeling the way they feel. And they get mad at you. And they say, no, no, I want you to affirm me. I want you to tell me I'm right. We love being right. Everybody loves being right. It feels good. Um, but, but it becomes extraordinarily difficult to break through this when you have a president who says, everyone's lying to you. All the news is fake. I'm the only person that tells you the truth. I mean, this has gotten to the point where the president yesterday said, 
refer to a piece of legislation that doesn't exist. <laughs> of I mean, course. What do you mean it doesn't exist, Tom? The president said it exists. Right. What, what, <laughs> what are you getting your news, Tom? The failing New York Times? Right. You know, lying CNN? Uh, you know, why do you, how can you possibly think it doesn't exist? Well, you know, there's now a crowd of people walking out of that rally saying, boy, I hope they really defeat that Feinstein bill. And, and you can't reason with them. No, you can't. And that's the, the scary part for me is you can't reason with them. So where does that leave us? Um, you know, you also talk about in the book, you talk about you blame Google for making people dumber. Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, because, you know, now I, I let me just say that I don't blame this phenomenon on the Internet because I. My research tells me that this actually started at sometime in the 70s. And I, I blame every, you know, like you and I are both conservatives, so we both blame everything bad on the 1960s. Right. Um, <laughs> but but I think, you know, this kind of self-empowerment notion of I am omnicompetent, I, I can know everything, I don't need teachers and, you know, experts and scientists to tell me stuff. I think that really picks up steam in the 70s. But Google is a shortcut to sounding smart. Um, to say, well, I've read, I, I ha you know, any any expert who's ever had to deal with the public, when you come out and you say, where, where are you getting this information? They say, well, I've read, I've read stuff. And what they mean is I rummaged around in the big dumpster called the internet until I found something that tasted good. I found something that agreed with me. So I, I quote unquote read something. And that is where Google just empowers people to be stupid. Because Google, it, for your younger listeners out there, let me just plead to quote Jim Mattis, with tears in my eyes, I am pleading with you. Stop saying that the internet is a library. <laughs> because it's not. Right. Libraries are curated. They have librarians. They make decisions about what should be in a library. The internet is just a huge dumpster that might have a, you know, it might have a Shakespeare first folio in it, and it might have old issues of Hustler in it. I mean, there, you, you, there's no, there's no telling what you're going to encounter out there because there is no curation, and the people who put things on the internet don't always have your best interests at heart. Which is actually a good segue into just because I only have you for a couple more minutes. Um, I would it would be remiss of me to have you and not talk about Russia, given that you consider yourself a what do you call it, a Sovietologist? Yeah, shows you how old I am that I I would, I would say that right uh, where the Soviet Union's been gone for a generation, but Putinologist, a Putinologist. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So just to just to talk a little bit about what your why it is so important for people to to pay attention to the Mueller investigation and the role of Russia it's more than just Donald Trump being beholden to Russians because of finances which is a whole nother issue and the New York Times has uncovered his tax situation and and what a mess it is financially for Donald Trump when I've always been one to say the reason why he's so you know, in love with Russia is not only because he's enamored with authoritarianism, but they financially propped him up after his father died. So there's that. But from the foreign policy, national security perspective, why should we care what Russia is doing? Why is it that it's so disheartening for you and me and others that Republicans are now all of a sudden giving Putin a pass? You made a really good point here, Tara, with the, the, investigation of the president's finances. Um, I think 
my personal opinion, and I started by saying this, and I'll end by saying it, just my personal opinion, um, is that um, he, the president's been, you know, neck deep in financial transactions that don't smell good uh, with the Russians for a long time, and he doesn't want that to come out. Um, and that's leverage. The Russians, I, I don't think, and I, I've said this many times, I don't think the Russians are directing Trump or telling him what to do. I think he is just naturally afraid of them because of what they know about him. Uh, and so he's proactively trying to not piss them off because they pretty much know where all his financial bodies are buried. Right. So that's a bit, but you know, that New York Times story comes out and only in 2018 does that not even come close to being the top story of the week, right? Right. Only because of the Kavanaugh situation. It was and poor timing. And also because we live in bizarre world now. Um, but the other uh, thing that you mentioned is, you know, why we should care about Russia. The, if the Russians are not in a position of let and let, live and let live. Putin is clinging to power like a mafia boss, and he needs to do certain things. He needs to keep his people engaged in constant conflict. And he needs an enemy. And for him, that's us. Um, he also wants his regime to look normal by comparison. And the way he does that is to pollute and poison all the regimes around him. He's not just doing it to us. He's interfering in the French elections. I did two speaking tours for the State Department in the Czech Republic. He's messing with the Czech elections and Czech, the Czech information space. Um, he's attacking NATO allies one after another because he wants all of this to kind of come apart and the world to be a shambles so that Russia can do whatever the hell it wants at will, which is not in our interest because we are a global power and we do preside over a globalized cooperative economy that the Russians don't happen to care that much about. And also because he wants his regime to survive. And, and so he doesn't want anybody else, any other um, examples to exist in the world of prosperous, peaceful democracies. I mean, the, the, now I say this, talk about people owning up to mistakes. If people read the book, which is now out in paperback, you know, there's some um, shilling, straight up shilling. That's okay. Um, <laughs> we want people to read your book so they can they can understand why or why not they are, well, you know, expertise matters. <laughs> I, I own up to a big mistake in the book about, you know, in 2001, 2002, I said, you know, this Putin guy, he might not be so bad. He, you know, he's going to kind of reform the court system and he's going to try and, you know, work with us in a kind of Atlantic foreign policy. George um, Bush said the same thing. George he looked Bush into his soul. My old, my old boss, Congressman Rohrabacher, who, you know, at now has lost his mind with Russia, but he had a position similar back yep. then saying, hey, look, maybe there's a chance here. They're not the evil empire anymore. And he was a Reagan guy. You know, yep. he was like, the, the people here, maybe they're ripe for reform. Let's try to work with them. Where he went left is since Putin has demonstrated that he's he is part of the evil empire still and, and Dana never made the adjustment. And so I've been gone for five years. I can't take responsibility for what he's been doing for the last five years. But that was, uh, I'm glad to hear that you said that you had a, you know, a change of heart on that because a lot of people think my poor old boss was, you know, just this Russian uh, operative and he's not, I think he came from a similar good place. A lot of people were hopeful to say, look, you know, a Soviet ideology was the mainspring of the cold war. Now it's that we're dealing with an unstable mafia boss. Um, and, you know, your old boss, I, I won't even speculate about the problems your old boss has, but I think he's representative of, representative of a certain streak of Republicans who say, you know what, Putin doesn't like minorities, he doesn't like gay people, he, you know, thumps his chest about Christianity and Western culture. I mean, there's a huge racist streak 
in the Russian, in the way Putin governs that appeals to right wingers in the United States. And I keep trying to say to them, that wasn't the case for Dana, by the way, he thought that we needed Russia to fight the war on terror. That was really more where he came from. A lot of people to say, I you can't know. speak for others, but I know for Dana that was because I would never work for someone that would, you know, that had those other characteristics. But a lot of people said, "Look, let's just overlook everything bad going on in Russia because right. we got to up on the terror." And I early on I said that I said, "Let's make the Russians into an ally on this." Uh, but I think that we've now, you know, just reached a point where it's Putin. You know, Putin is illiberal, and I hate everything that is even remotely liberal. And so Putin's kind of my hero. And Putin is laughing his ass off. Oh, my gosh. People just have no idea. I say that all the time. Ass off at American Republicans. And you and I coming up, you know, as kind of Reagan kids, that's intolerable to me. That that I'm this stupid about Russia. And I don't look, my daughter is Russian. Okay. I mean, this, you know, my, I, I have, I am Greek Orthodox. I love My house is full of Russian art and literature. I am not a Russophobe. I wanted to have a closer relationship with Russia, but you know, reality is reality. You deal with the world as you find it, not as you want it to be. Uh, and I think that the, the president and the Republican party, and maybe, you know, this is kind of the last thing I can say about why I exited at the very least, I was always able to say the Republicans are the party of national security. At least now they have to be. They are not. I mean, if, if the Democrats win in November and that takes Devin Nunes out of uh, HIPSI, out of the House Select Intelligence Committee, that's enough for me. Yeah, no kidding. That, you know, that alone would be worth it. What's so, the one thing that keeps you up at night on the global stage? Nuclear weapons. Yeah. We can survive everything else. We can survive, you know, a tariff war. We can survive all kinds of dumb stuff. We can survive... We'll survive Donald Trump and Brett Kavanaugh and all the rest of these guys. We start making mistakes in places like North Korea, or if Putin decides that uh, he's going to prove that NATO doesn't really matter, mm-hmm. and, and he tries to take a little chunk of Estonia, not because he wants to conquer NATO, but just to make the point that the Americans don't run the world, right? I'm going to sit some Russian troops here and flip you the bird. That stuff can get off the can get off the handle really fast, and I don't think the president. You know, I'm sorry to say this. He is still my president and my commander in chief, um, but I don't think he's up to the job. And I think that he could bumble us right into a major conflict. I, I'll say this about Donald Trump. He's the luckiest president I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, so far it's been two years and he hasn't had, you know, a, a ma- I mean, he's had one major crisis and it involved Puerto Ricans. So his people didn't care about it. Right. Because what, what do you mean Puerto Rico is part of America? They're citizens? Yeah. Well, they, but they know, can't vote for me, so to hell with them. Yeah, they can't immigrate here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, we can't build a wall to keep them out. So, But I, I, I mean, that's what I really worry about. I mean, if we end up in a major conflict somewhere, uh, he's just not going to be up to it. And um, I, I think we're, you know, I, I'm, I'll tell you what keeps me up is if Jim Mattis retires. Yeah. Well, that scares the hell out of me. They're saying he's not going to make it into year three. Yeah. Yeah. And that me too, because at least those were people who were the adults in a room that if you if you read uh, Woodward's book, Fear, um, the fact that even Mattis and others would just ignore some of the wackier things that Trump would ask them to do in order to just maintain sanity and and safety is that's remarkable to think about that, that they would defy the orders of the president, but necessary in this day and age. I didn't mean to interrupt, but, you know, that that pattern of civil military relations. And I wrote about this. Uh, uh, a while back in the Federalist, I, I said, look, you know, there are too many generals 
This is a bad pattern of civil military relations. We're basically all saying, wow, I'm really glad that a four-star general, you know, retired four-star general is running the Pentagon and pretty much doesn't, you know, let the president do what he wants to do. Right. We're all thankful for that, but that is not the American a small R Republican tradition of civil control in the military. And I think General Mattis, I think Secretary Mattis knows it. And I think he's concerned about it. Yeah. And I'm once again saying, I don't speak for Mattis or the Defense Department. Sure. I think, you know, he has really written a lot about this and the man's a deep thinker. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people who are saying, you know, this is not healthy. Well, that goes back to Benjamin Franklin saying, well, we've got a republic if you can keep it. If we can keep it. Before I let you go, I have to, I always try to end my interviews on a lighter note because we talk about pretty heavy stuff. Yes. <laughs> we just talked about nuclear war, the end of the Republic, you know. Um, I know that you and everyone who follows Tom on Twitter, and it's at Radio Free Tom, um, knows that you have a, a pet peeve about people and bare feet. Why? What happened to you that caused this trauma? I share not, I share the disgustingness of it, but it's become almost you. a thing now. Everyone everyone sends you pictures of bare bare feet in public. This thank you so much for asking this because I want to emphasize it's not about bare feet. You know, I don't have any particular feeling one way or another about human feet. Um, <laughs> it is about the complete collapse of public decorum and any sense of deportment or hygiene. Um, I you know I if you want to take your shoes off at home put your feet on your own furniture, fine. You know, but if you're on an airplane, leave your goddamn shoes on. <laughs> it's so you know, gross. If you're on a train or a bus, or if you're in my classroom, I actually had a guy in my classroom over the summer, one of my better students, and he kicked off his sandals, he's sitting there in his bare feet, and I looked at him, finally I said, in my class of <laughs> right. all people, I said, you know, this is disrespectful. Put your damn shoes on. <laughs> you know, this isn't your, this isn't your, your dorm at three in the morning. And, and I think, you know, it's, I, I have, look, when I taught at Dartmouth for years, I had a no hat rule. I wouldn't let kids wear hats in class. Mm -hmm. They were like, dude, you know, like, of course, right, dude, but I didn't wash my hair. And I said, well, here's a little life advice. Get up a little earlier and wash your damn hair. Right. That's right. You Do know? you think it's a millennial thing? Because no. I, no, I think it's an American thing. Again, since the 1960s to say that formalism is oppressive, man. You know, yeah. Uh, I'm about to go on. You know, you and I were talking. I'm about to go on, do some, do a TV hit. I'm going to put a tie on. Right. It shows respect for the audience. It shows respect for the host. It, it's my way of saying, look, I appreciate that you've all taken the time to to listen to me. So I'm going to show up here. You know, um, not looking like I just, you know, ro got Literally shot out rolled of out of bed. <laughs> yeah, like I rolled out of bed. Well, so, they, put your shoes on for God's sake. That, if if no one remembers anything this conversation, it's remember <laughs> to put your damn shoes on in public. Keep them on in public. Keep them on in public for God's sake. Oh, for God's sakes! Oh, the humanity. Well, Tom, you know I I really appreciate how much time you spent with me. And for people who don't know, um, you know when you write a book called The Death of Expertise. I, people should understand that not only are you an accomplished academic, you have a PhD, you're a professor at the Naval War College, but you are also, oh, you're also a cat lover, by the way. I, I am. I, you have a cat named Carla, yes? I do. And you, it's a rescue, right? Yes, she sat in a window, and I walked by the window every every day. I was living next door to John Schindler, who people on Twitter know him as 20 Committee. Yep. And, uh we walked by, and finally he just turned to me. He said, you stare at that damn cat every day. He said, just go in and adopt it. And I said, you know what? You're right. And I went in. I was single. 
was between my two marriages. I was living alone and I said, you know, and I went and got this cat and um, she, she is um, my, my best little friend. Uh, and I love that about you because I'm a cat person too. I have my cat Tiki that everybody knows about and I tweet about all the time who's snoring next to me right now as I'm doing this podcast. So I always appreciate cat people. And uh, Asha Rangapa, who was my guest last week, she's a big cat person too. So she always tweets out cool kitten things whenever things are going to hell because it calms her down. <laughs> I love dogs. I love all animals. Me too, but... As Charles Dickens said, you know, um, um, uh, how fortunate to have the love of a cat. A- a- amen. And also, you're a five-time Jeopardy champion, which is I, something I would love to do when they had the celebrity um, media Jeopardy during the election. I wanted to get on so bad. I watch Jeopardy almost every day. I, I'm proud of myself when I get the final Jeopardy question right. So I, that, that, it's a thrill to talk to it, a real-life Jeopardy champion. Well, it's uh, it's the most terrifying 28 minutes of your life because even as much fun as it is, always in the back of your head is, I'm about to destroy my complete credibility by saying something stupid. <laughs> is okay. Alex Trebek as obnoxious in person as he yes. is on air? <laughs> he's, he's very, you know, people say, what's Alex like? And I'm like, I don't really know because he doesn't, he's not very pleasant off screen and that's all an act. So um, the the contestant people at Jeopardy are wonderful. Alex is about as um, about as cuddly as an iceberg. Yeah, I, so. I I imagined my husband and I when whenever we get a chance to watch, we will just go like you know some of the little snarky things he says. Well, he's such a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> like it was so obnoxious. As if he knew the answer. Oh, well, obviously it's Montmartre. Right. <laughs> Come on. Oh man. Well. Again, Tom, thank you, Professor Nichols, for your, your wonderful time. I just want you to know that I, I don't have shoes on, but I am in the comfort of my of my office. So Judgment I have not violated any Professor Nichols rules today. You're allowed to be. It's your it's your space. <laughs> Again, how can people find you? Radio Free Tom on Twitter. Uh, and um, if they want to send me an email, deathofexpertise at gmail.com. And go get the book. I think it's a, it's a great read. It's a quick read, and I think people will, will enjoy it. If you enjoy Tom's wit and smarts, it is just as good in the book. Tom Nichols, thank you again for joining me on Honestly Speaking. Thanks for having me, Tom. We continue to face some serious problems out there, real ones. But one of them should never be finding great-looking new blinds for your windows. That's why BlindsGalore.com is around. Blinds Galore was the first place to buy custom window treatments online, so they know what they're doing. Not only have they been in business for over 20 years and have covered over 2 million windows, they're a family-owned business, so they know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right price. They make it easy. Blinds Galore creates 100% custom window treatments built to your exact measurements down to every detail. You get professional designer quality products, but not at designer prices. In fact, they beat the big box store prices. BlindsGalore.com, all their products are hand-built from scratch, delivered right to your door, and they're created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help every step of the way, either online or over the phone. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. If you don't like your custom blinds or shades for any reason at all, they're the wrong color, you measured them wrong, you don't like the style, You can just exchange it for free and get another covering for free. 
Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of their free expertise. It doesn't get any better than that. Whether you need more privacy, to sleep in, or just to fix up a room, BlindsGalore.com has just what you're looking for. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know that I, Tara Setmayer, sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. Well, it's been a rough week and we had some pretty heavy topics, but I always like to end my podcast with a feel-good story. And this week I decided I wanted to find a feel-good story that had to do with women or girls. So I did. And I I think this is really, really cute. So there's this girl, she's seven years old. Well, no, she's eight years old now. But when she was seven years old, her name is Nijay Graham Henrys. And she's from North Philadelphia. And when she was seven years old, just before she started second grade, she went to this like junior barber academy with her brother. I didn't even know they had those, but I think that's pretty cool. So her and her brother went to check this out. and And her brother she was just tagging along with him, but he decided like, eh, I'm not interested. I don't want to learn how to cut hair. Forget it. But she became interested in it. So when she went home, she said to her mom, you know, my brother doesn't want to do this, but I'll give it a try because I think it's pretty cool. So she became the youngest person to ever enroll in this junior barber academy. And she not only graduated, but she was, she's cutting hair in the neighborhood for free. So she's decided to take what she learned and apply it as community service. So she's cutting other kids' hair in the neighborhood for free. And what's really cool about this, which I think is is encouraging, is that she not only was the youngest person to ever not only go but graduate from this academy, but she was the only female. Good for you, Nijay. That goes to show you that no matter what, especially for women, be encouraged that you can do anything. It's girl power. I think that's amazing. And way to start young for this for this young Nijay because she could have been easily intimidated and because she was the only girl and she was so young, but she wasn't. And you know what she said? Um, I was reading through the story and she said that, you know, she wasn't intimidated because, you know, she just, she thought it was the right thing to do and she wanted to do it. Well, that's the kind of attitude I, I like to see. Good for her. And so she was asked in the, in the interview um, among her goals, like who's a celebrity whose hair she'd like to cut? And guess what her answer was? Donald Trump. She said, Donald Trump, he's got too much long hair, so I'd like to cut that. <laughs> Believe me, Nijay, you're not the only one. That, that thing is a mess. I'm, I'm, I'd love to see you cut his hair. But good for you, Nijay Henrys. Not only were you tough and decided to do something that most girls wouldn't do, especially that young, but you're successful and giving back to your community. That's what I'm talking about. What a great example. We could all learn from it, yes? Well, that's this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Thank you for joining me. Thank you again to Tom Nichols for joining me. You can find me at on Twitter at Tara Setmayer or at honestly underscore Tara. That's the honestly speaking Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. You can always hashtag honestly speaking Tara. If you want to send me questions, 
guest suggestions, topic suggestions, things you want me to talk about. I'm really interactive on Twitter, so feel free to to reach out that way. And um, I'd love to hear from you guys. I try to answer as many questions as possible because I, I think it's important to interact with the people who listen. I appreciate you guys taking the time and stay tuned for next week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara.